This is 91.1 WNXP, and I am Marquise Munson. The legendary hip-hop trio De La Soul just released the 35th anniversary of their debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. The album features the usual classic cuts from The Magic Number to Me, Myself, and I, but also unreleased versions of Freedom of Speak, We Got Three Minutes, Ain't Hip to Be Labeled a Hippie, What's More, and Jennifer Taught Me 12-inch version. Around this time last year, De La Soul's music was released on streaming services, allowing fans to go back to listen to classic records from De La Soul is Dead, Three Feet High and Rising, and Balloon Mind State. Also last year, I had the opportunity to talk to Maceo of De La Soul about their music being released on streaming services and paying tribute to True Goy the Dove. Here's my conversation with Maceo of De La Soul. You are listening to 91.1 WNXP. My name is Marquise Munson. And when I say I'm joined by a very special guest, I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. One of the members of the most iconic, influential, I can just go on with the titles, but one of the members of De La Soul is joining me, Maceo. Plug three, kicking it with me, Maceo. How's it going? Thank you, brother. Pleasure. That intro was dope. <laughs> I could have added more titles to it, but you know what? We got a we got a time limit here, so I'm like, I'm gonna just move that forward. But I could easily give you some more titles for that for sure. That was, heart, that was heartfelt. I appreciate that. Wow. Absolutely. I want to go back now to 2021 when Reservoir Media acquired De La Soul's catalog back in 2021 from Tommy Boy Records. You said it's 20 years overdue, but we finally hear. Even after that, there were still things that needed to be worked on before making the music available like it is today, listening to it on the way here. What was that two-year process like for you guys? And what was the reason it took two years to get this music ready for re-release on streaming services? We had to clear a lot of samples that hadn't been cleared by Tommy Boy in the past for the re-release. Also, we would have ran into a the problems that we ran into when we were on the label. Clearing the samples were very important. And then also um, for what we couldn't clear, we had to go in the studio and do some rework on it. Prince Paul, along with myself and, and the engineer, our engineer, Scotty, we spent all last summer working on the catalog. Paul did a lot of the reworks with the musicians and the vocalists and myself, Scotty and Paul, we mixed the record. It's did all the necessary rework that had to be done to not only just um, fix that little business error, but make sure we sustain the aesthetics of the record, you know, so it can truly sound like 1989, you know, <laughs> and not like 2021, you know, or 2023, I should say. The only thing I think you're going to get out of the modernized sound is that it is innately digital, regardless to how analog we made the record and then there's also some really cool things like spatial that's going on right now to hear the music in a special dynamic way that's so broad that i think is beautiful that's pretty cinematic to the ears you know but not changing anything that was created from back when you know so it was just maintaining the aesthetics of the record the way you heard it from when you first got it you know and also seeing if People can catch the rework. <laughs> no, there's definitely people who have caught it. 
like you can hear certain samples that are missing from certain songs. Is there a song that's like really blatant to you and you're just like, still great. It sounds great, but I just know that there's things missing on this record. Yeah, me, myself, and I. Straight up. <laughs> Straight up. Me, myself, and I. That one is blatant to me. The reworks of the um the Ohio players sample. Check it out. That right there. What else stands out? That that in particular. That that right there in particular. Every time I hear it, I, I, I know it's a rework. Oh, yeah, on Magic Number, I don't think anyone else can tell, but I could tell, do the shang-a-lang at the, in the skit, that, that part at the very end with all the cuts that come in. That's actually Corey Glover from um, uh, Living, in Living Color, the band in Living Color. That's Corey Glover doing that. And a lot of other reworks. Um, This is a recording that I can tell on that one as well the reworks on that even with the reworks though it's such a special moment to get these first six albums finally on streaming services because you know back in march for our record of the week i featured three feet high and rising as our record of the week and usually we talk to artists about the making of these records and what went into it but for this one i had the opportunity to talk to colleagues and listeners who told stories about how much that record impacted them. And so to be able to get all six of these records and relive it from various different generations is such a bittersweet moment. And I know it came at a difficult time for you guys, you know, yeah. with the passing of Trugoy. And I remember when that happened and me and my colleague, Steve Harouche and Khalil, we sitting in the office and we like, man, like we really, wish that true goy can see the love that these records are getting he can see it he can see it i just wish we just wish he was here to see it but he can see it there's a selfishness in all of us that wants him here so we can experience this with him but he can see it the ability for me to get up every day and keep going is because i hear his voice i could hear him you know i could feel him he definitely is making a lot happen right now. I can that's what that's what my spirit is telling me. It's what it's been telling me. Cause I, I know where I was in a dark hole with this and I can hear him telling me to keep let's go, let's keep rolling. You know, I can hear him saying, Mace, be on time. Let's go. <laughs> Just to let you know and the world know, yo man, he's here with us in spirit, man. Straight up. And when I was watching the Daisy experience, like I can feel that, you know, before the release of the music, seeing all these artists, DJs, music execs, all these people coming together to celebrate not only the legacy that you guys have, but showing love to True Roy. It was one of the most beautiful nights in music and I wasn't even in attendance. I was watching it from my living room, but I still felt an experience all the love that was being shown at Webster Hall that night. So how did that event, the Daisy experience, come together? It was supposed to, I mean, that was actually our release party. That was supposed to happen anyway. How it ended up turning out, it ended up being Dave's memorial. And it was, um, I will honestly say it was Pasta's idea for us to continue to have it. We treated like that scene in Beach Street, that New Year's Eve scene in Beach Street. 
where they turned the New Year's Eve party into a remote into a memorial for Ramon. Dave is our Ramon. He's our artist's favorite artist, like truly an artist, you know, down to drawing and everything, you know. I mean, he was the one who gave us all the crazy haircuts. He was the one that drew the plug sign. You know, he was very detailed in our art, you know. So he was our Ramon in Beach Street, and that's how we celebrated it. I can talk about, like, just the impact of you guys from a musical standpoint, from a fashion standpoint, for a lot of my colleagues and a lot of listeners, when we talked about that record, they told me in real time, being a teenager, that record was refreshing for hip hop. Man, I appreciate that. I mean, just the dudes in the neighborhood, man. I guess that's the energy that we we brought, you know, just something a little bit more relatable, you know, to the guy next door who may live next door to the, the thug. <laughs> Or live next door to the nerd. You know what I mean? Like, it was another element of all of our communities. Just what was in hip-hop at the time had a strong bravado that I think we brought the the class clown part of it all to the table. And I think the skits stand out very much so amongst the song structure. Because even within our songs, we talked about a lot of the same subjects just in our own way. And one of my colleagues, Khalil, he was like, when he was telling the story about how Three Feet High and Rising impacted him, he was like, you know, De La Soul were like the big brothers my mom would allow me to hang out with <laughs> late, at ni- late at night because <laughs> they knew they weren't going to get me in trouble. Like, that's the sort of vibe that you guys were giving to teenagers at that time. I appreciate that. I mean, we did get in trouble, but we did protect our friends. <laughs> But, you know, sticking with, like, not just that record, but just sampling in general, you know, talking with people about the impact of you guys and your music, sampling is always mentioned in that conversation. I know I can speak for myself when I can say that I discovered a lot of music listening to Three Feet High and Rising and De La Soul is Dead, you know, from Steely Dan to the Turtles, Hall of Notes and Parliament. You guys sampled a war song, which I grew up in California. My folks was listening to war, but Magic Mountain wasn't nothing. That was like a deep cut from right. a track from war. So how were you discovering this music and what was the process for you sampling back then? When sampling became the thing, after hearing like The Bridge by Molly or even like poetry by BDP, it was like, yo, so, you know, you immediately start going into your parents' record collection. So everything initially was from what was going on in the household and what was surrounding the household. It wasn't like we went shopping for these records. It was what we went digging for in our parents' collection or my aunt's collection or my uncle's collection and coming up with their influences and and discovering this music. So it was all what was already in the house at the time. Because I can honestly say for myself, as a teenager, I was buying rap records. As a DJ, I was immediately buying rap, rap records. The R&B stuff I kind of got into behind my uncles and them and his crew. And then, of course, as I got older and experiencing DJing more parties, I knew what records I needed to have. But when it came to digging deep into, like, war with Magic Mountain, going deep into my parents' collection, Pops going deep into his parents' collection, you know, Dave and his parents' collection and their influences, when I talk about the legacy of De La Soul, 
I always like to make sure that I mention Prince Paul as well. Yes. You know, because when I think of Public Enemy, I think Bomb Squad. When I think of NWA and G-Funk, I think of Dr. Dre. When I listen to De La Soul, I also think Prince Paul. And we can mm -hmm. talk hours about his impact. But for just you personally, being a DJ and working with Prince Paul, learning from a fellow DJ and producer, what were some of those things you picked up from him throughout the years? The freedom to create. Knowing that no idea is a bad idea until you reach the end of the song. And you have that feeling, you know, that feeling you look to have when you complete a song. And then once we reach that point, you know, you kind of decide what you want to keep or what you want to take out or even if you want to use the song at all. But the freedom to create, feeling like, you know, try every idea. Don't let nothing sit dormant because you can, you'll regret it, you know, and you'll take the fun away from yourself by not, you know, implementing every feeling that you have for a, a track or a song, you know? So that freedom along with him giving us, you know, teaching us everything about the studio. I think creatively, we always was pretty solid, just didn't have the equipment. But Paul definitely taught us the studio and taught us how to further advance our production knowledge. But yeah, he was always like a fourth member, big brother, a mentor. I mean, easily a member of the group. Everything that connected with what we were doing and vice versa. You know, I think coming from his own situation, being in a group, there was some abilities, I should say, he couldn't really express being in that dynamic that when he um, actually got a hold of us, you know, he did everything, everything that he couldn't do and trained us differently, man, like pushed the limit. And, and also was like, don't take this thing so serious. So I think that's where the humor really hit hard. Because Paul was like, yo, don't take this rap thing so serious. You know, especially at the time we were all coming in. It did, it looked like we all were going to have to go back and get day jobs after we made these records. So he was like, yo, don't, don't take it so serious. Have fun with it. And we had, we still having fun with it. I love him for that. We we can talk about Three Feet High and Rising. We can talk about De La Soul is Dead, the first two records that a lot of people talk about. But when you guys released the catalog, I went back to balloon mind state because a lot of people were telling me like this is my favorite de la soul record it is balloon mind state and you guys did a, sh a sonic shift from your first two records on that album so what went into that process of making that sonic switch on balloon mind state at that point we were all producing individually not so much collectively at this point we then set up studios in each other one another's homes and we now trying to come with full produced production to impress one another. Um, after touring with all these different dynamic groups and bands and stuff like that, especially playing a lot of festivals early on. Not only in addition to that, A Tribe Called Quest was a huge influence on me in the direction of that record because Tribe was into a lot of jazz, you know, and... And I loved where Tribe was going musically with their influences, you know. And I was figuring out how to emulate some of what they were doing, but in my own way, you know. So I got more into like the big band jazz, like Al Hurt, um, Buddy Rich, stuff like that. I got to a lot of that. Start going in that direction. That was a major influence for me. Being able to see Maceo Parker and Fred Wesley and Pee Wee Ellis perform and we end up working with them 
And although hip hop was making a, a more of a another shift with what Bad Boy was coming with, here come Dr. Dre really heavy with Death Row and that shift. I mean, when we first came in the first in the first place, we never felt like we fit into anything that was happening. So it was like we always just stuck to doing our own thing. And granted, we loved everybody that was doing their thing because this is all part of the culture, all part of the community, all a part of everybody's reality. And it was important to be different for everyone not be the same. So I'm glad we always just stayed in our lane. Balloon Mind State, it's one of my favorite records as well. One of the least successful records, but also incomplete in my opinion as well. I think the record is a little incomplete. You know, I think we could have did more on that record. I'm going to go back to you talking about that blend of jazz and hip hop because Guru is also featured on this record as well. That was another influence too. Guru with the jazz matizers around yes. that time. That was another influence for me, you know, between Tribe and Jazzmatize, you know. And, and every now and again, Primo was touching it, but it was more so Guru and who he was working with with the Jazzmatize project, which had me, like, really intrigued to mess with some jazzier, more style music. The next record, you know, Stakes is High, that was the first time you guys stepped away from Prince Paul's production. You guys were challenging yourselves on that record, and the title track really set the tone for that record. And it's one of my favorite Dilla beats of all time because it sounds like something out of a movie score. It was like this statement track produced by Jay Dilla for you guys after the first three albums. So how did you connect with Dilla on that record? And as a DJ, what was your reaction to listening to the instrumental for Stakes is High? Life just changed. You know, actually Paul, Paul wanted to leave Balloon Mind State. Me personally, I felt like we still needed his guidance. It came the fourth album that it became uh, a mutual separation at that point. Meeting Dilla, that was like here in Slum Village around like 92 on a demo tape. And, and Dave and Q-Tip actually met Dilla. So but Dilla had became more of a fixture in Tribe. But when he sent us a beat tape with that stakes as high as track, well, actually, Poss is the one who heard it over Q-Tip's house. He heard it over Q-Tip's house and pretended that he didn't like the beat. <laughs> went, in the, went in the bathroom and called Dave and said, yo, got this beat over here. Tip is playing me this beat by Dilla. He said, I think this is the title track. That was like the only track Dilla produced on the album, but so highly impactful. The beat is insane. The beat is like in a 3-4. The sample is like in a 3 and the, the drum track is in a 4. So it's the way it lands on the beat. It's just such a vibe. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it had, it had a crazy vibe. And then, and you know, lyrics bring it out. You know, it's all what the lyrics is going to bring it to. And I think um, the way Pasta Dave nailed the lyrics based on the, the time period, what's going on in hip hop, what was going on in our lives, what we all collectively felt about our careers at that moment. It was like, if this album don't do it, we all going back to regular life. Yeah, stakes were high. And, you know, and stakes are still high when you look at life and what's surrounding, you know. Certain things that we felt about our lives still still holds today. Stakes are still high. We all still on the grind date, <laughs> you know. And I must thank the, the anonymous nobodies that's still supporting. <laughs> no, absolutely. Look, like, was that, was that kind of a, like, realization that, like, yo, we really have people behind us. We did a Kickstarter for this record. 
And like you guys probably already knew, like people were behind you in your music. But that Kickstarter, you guys were able to release a Grammy nominated album because fans knew what you guys were capable of musically. So how did that moment feel for you guys? That was a blessing. It was a pretty daunting process. It was a lot of work put into it. If you go back and look at the history of it and all the things we offered back and forth to do it. But I think all in the end, it was um, us committing to delivering a quality product like we always have. You know, no different if we were on in a label situation. I think at that point in our careers, we were highly regarded by our fans and trusted to deliver. And I thank the fans for that, like trusting us to give up their money for us to make a record with no return, but just seeing it come out. And I've been one of the ones paying attention to the internet for a very long time. So I felt confident about doing it, knowing pretty much where my fans were as the internet continued to grow. You know, I've been on the internet since the dial-up era. So I've been actually the first to stream live as a DJ, visually live. So I've been following this thing for a long time, knowing where I feel like my true core audience has been, my loyal fans have been. You know, I feel like not to be disrespectful in any way, but I feel like I got a, a audience of true thinkers and that will escape the mainstream world to go further into in depth into intellect. So I, I like to follow the smart people, you know what I'm saying? Not to discredit anyone else's knowledge, but I like to definitely follow smart people where they and, and how deep they're willing to go. And the internet early on has been that place you know, for creative thinkers. And they, when you look at the comments that have been developed and here where everybody has been able to have a voice, I've been able to learn where my audience has been. So I felt like I had confidence in going to ask them for something that one, they built in the first place. You know, they built the Kickstarter for that reason. So why not give it a shot? The ultimate thing was, it's a, people have to understand that it was a reciprocating relationship. We had to really give something to get, you know, whether it was take a fan shopping or they go a record shopping with Mace or sneaker shopping with Paz or, you know, dinner with Dave or what have you, you know. But more importantly, delivering a great album. What or even who is inspiring you creatively in music now? Like, what are you currently spinning? I, I play everything. I guess the way we even receive music these days it's a little different than what I'm conditioned to. And I still do both parts. Like I still play vinyl and I play digital. And what's on a lot, what's in this current era is obviously not on vinyl. So I have to go and approach digital in a certain way to get the songs that I like, the songs that I love. I mean, my only approach to digital that's similar to records is literally going right away, listening to the song without, reading the liner notes. I don't want to really read the liner notes. I just want to hear the damn song. And if it touches me, it's on my set. I'm one of the DJs who actually make records. So I get to truly play what I feel, what I love, what's actually, I'm not your radio DJ. Although there's stuff on the radio that I do like. And honestly, for the people who actually check me as a, as a DJ, they look for me to play very obscure stuff. So when I do play radio stuff, it's a surprise to them. And they know that if I'm playing that, I really like that. You know what I'm saying? And granted, there's a lot of that I like. 
every era of hip hop has some whack. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> every era has some whack. Every era has a lot of people who are copycats. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, and we dealing with that in this era as well, you know, and there's a lot of shit that I like a lot. Are there plans for more shows? I know you guys have been talking about the AOI 3. Is there plans for new music for De La Soul moving forward as you to continue to carry on the legacy of True Boy the Dove? Absolutely. It's a responsibility at this point, not only just for him or for hip hop in general. We, even before he passed, you know, we realized we all talked amongst one another and said, we, damn, we got involved in something that became bigger than us, you know, and that we now at this point have a responsibility. Of course, with Dave's untimely demise, we've been inspired by family and friends to definitely keep it going. It was always said in rhymes that we're going to do this to the death. I'm going to see my man on the other side eventually, but what I do know He's still right here with us, pushing them little whispers in our ear. I've been making tremendous music over here. AOI 3 is definitely happening, and it's happening because now you got one and two. What sense of making three when you couldn't get one and two? (laughs) Now you got one and two, so three is definitely going to happen. And, you know, we're going to let God speak to us on how we're going to continue to move forward. But performing, absolutely, like, I'm DJing, Pasta's rhyming, and we're going to get on stage and rock. I mean, granted, we were already had a, a bit of a show together when he wasn't well prior to the pandemic. But it was a show that we know we had in place provided when he was ready to come back. You know, it was a structure of a, of a show that as soon as he came back, he could easily jump right in. You know what I mean? But now we have to set up a pretty much a, a, a permanent thing. So we're just trying to figure it out because at the end of the day, we we don't want to have to continue to rely on a Black Thought or a Farrell Monch or a Common. We don't have to rely on nobody. We want to show that we still got the strength and the spirit of our man on stage. You know what I'm saying? We're just going to figure it out. Maceo, man, I can talk to you for another hour. I Once again, try to condense 30 plus years into 20, 30 minutes is very hard, but I appreciate you just making the time to talk with us here in Nashville. I know there's a lot of De La Soul fans. I play De La Soul a lot and people always tell me how much they feel when I play De La Soul, deep cuts and all. So I appreciate you making the time today to talk to me and thank you for the amazing music for these 30 plus years. Thank you, man. Keep Dave Thank you, Dave. That's all we can really say, you know, and and let's see what the future brings. Word. Love you, brother. Hey, appreciate you, man. Thank you so much.